welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you mates miss the show at any time, you can download, download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CFRC Podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Vince Ha, who is doing a PhD in Screen Cultures and Curatorial Studies. It's a long one under the supervision of Dr. Ali Na. Welcome to Grad Chat, Vince. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to Grad Chat. Oh, I'm really, I'm really glad you came because I actually met Vince, a, oh, it's probably over a month ago now. It's, it's, time has flown at, a, at a, an exhibition, a special one, which we are going to talk a little bit about later. And it's kind of like, I need you guys to come on the show. <laughs> so, and luckily Vince put his hand up. So that, that's great. So, as I mentioned, there are two reasons why I wanted you to come on the show, and one is to showcase your research, of course, and the second one is to tell us about your participation in the Bell Park project here in Kingston. But let's start, though, with what is the essence, if you can use that word, of the program Screen Cultures and Curatorial Studies, because it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> It's a fairly new program at Queen's University, and I think that it bridges cinema studies, uh, film practice, and curatorial studies. And often, I haven't heard of too many programs that can kind of bridge those three elements. And so it drew me to this program because, you know, uh, I'm a practicing filmmaker. I have a love uh, with um, cinema theory, and, and i been doing uh, curatorial work on the side but with the other two elements you know I've always felt I've always learned things by doing them right. and then learning it afterwards and I felt that so strongly with my curatorial practice that I was already putting on like exhibitions but I was doubting a lot if I had the formal training for it right right and so this program was, it was just, you know, it piqued my interest because it allowed me to do the research that I wanted to do and had that kind of support for the curatorial studies that I was, you know, that I, I was looking for. And I was, you know, that there was a desire for me to, to, to kind of right. immerse myself into it. It's, it's interesting you say that because I, I think I feel the same way too. I mean, one of the reasons I went to school is because I wanted to understand the theory, the background behind a particular field of study. doesn't mean to say I'm going to use all of it in the real world, but it gives me an idea of going, you know what, I like that part, I don't like that part. Because at least then you've got a bit of a better understanding of where, where things have come from. I'm like you, I like to do, I learn from doing, but it does help having that bit of knowledge behind you. Mm -hmm. And for you, if you said you're a, you're a filmmaker, you want your film to be shown places. So what else can you do? You can make the film great, but you, but then you want people to see it, don't you? Mm -hmm. So what can you do with that? I'm very much a tinker. 
right. and just <laughs> so just even having that kind of tool set, that theoretical tool set that mm-hmm. I can rely on and fall back on, and use it as a launching point, has been extremely helpful. And if anything, makes me feel more confident in doing the work. So slowly, I'm learning to trust my voice and my instinct more. That's good. It's, it's weird, isn't it? That theory will help you feel that you can rely on your instinct more, because I, I've always felt insecure for not knowing enough theory. Oh, which is weird. Um, which is strange. Well, not really strange things, but it's interesting that you said that because you're in filmmaking, and that's very creative. So you think you would be okay with trusting, like you said, trusting your instincts of how to do things. And half the half the joy of looking at people who create is, wow, how did they get to that? And it's not necessary from learning theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Because it's their creative side and they've seen something in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having that combination must make things even more perhaps enlightening and, and give you other avenues to think about yeah because i mean usually in my um, process of art making it's a it's that process of creation mm-hmm. um, but when you are writing or when you're applying critical theories into your work it's a process of deconstruction right so being able to kind of update my skills in both makes me a more nimbler creator i yes. feel Yep. Right, because if you know how to de- deconstruction some uh, deconstruct something, you can kind of break that mold and construct something new off of the off old of model. It. Right. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I, and I guess I'm a perpetual learner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we hopefully we all are. We I, all should be learning every day. <laughs> and so I think it it, it also it just fits into the way that I operate. That's great. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> that was a long way of saying, well done. <laughs> no, it's always interesting because sometimes with programs, people don't quite understand what is a program about. And uh, you've explained it very well. So so thank you for that. So, so let's f- start first about talking about your own research before we get into the Bill Park project. And so your research topic is about examining the intersection of transnational media and queer studies, specifically looking at how different queer cultural groups in Canada rework transnational media for transcultural usage to foster or hinder community identities and socialization. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what you are trying to do in your research? Mm-hmm. Expand a little bit on, on that topic, because that was a big topic. <laughs> <laughs> Big program topic, big, big, program, pro- big yes. research topic. There you go. It, it, I, it, I can see it. <laughs> it sounds big, but it's actually quite niche. But I think that out of that small perspective, there's actually a much wider application or implication mm-hmm. of the work. And um, maybe to clarify, because there is a, still a lot of dispute between media scholars of the term transnational media. But here I'm referring to media that is used outside of its country of origin. Right, yes. So more specifically, I'm using the boys love media genre as a case study. And the boys love media started out as like a sojo manga, so a Japanese comics, post-World War II. 
Oh, it's a long time Yeah, post-World post War II. And they became extremely popular mainly uh, like during the 70s. And, you know, it was believed that because at the initial stage, most of the creators of EL mangas were female creators. And oh. it was female creators for female readers. And, but it features mainly homoerotic male-to-male relationships. Females talking about male relationships. So essentially, females talking about gay relationships. Gay relationships, yes. Right. And so a lot of scholars were wondering, well, you know, why? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was their main reason for using this, this genre? Um, and a lot of media scholars have posited that it's a way for Japanese women, especially post-World War II, to kind of break away that kind of genre expectation and the confinement of social restrictions at that time. But more recent scholarship has shown that actually the creation and the reception side of boys' love is actually a lot more complicated. You know, more about half to more than half, depending on the location that we're speaking about, don't identify as um, heterosexual. And so then becomes a much more complicated notion of representation of gay narratives, of queer narratives. My research in particular really looks at, well, what happens when we ask queer viewers about what they think about this genre that's being used? Right. For, for example, in the late 90s, uh, Japanese activists were voicing out that uh, Boys Love, BL, uh, was really projecting this kind of heteronormative romance on top of gay bodies, right? Right, right. And they voiced that, you know, the portrayal of boys love are not true to the socialization of queer men. You know, they're often very young, gorgeous, successful. It just doesn't represent the reality of most gay men. And so, and these characters, you know, they have very strict role in their relationship and they don't self-identify. Okay. Uh, so they don't identify as homosexual. They don't identify as queer. And so the question now becomes, what does that really represent? Some mm-hmm. scholars have suggested that, you know, when the characters don't identify, they kind of reserve themselves for straight female readers. And there's a huge following of boys love that are straight female readers that they call themselves rotten women. But was that the intention of the writers? It's hard because it's not very clear. Uh It has been one of the tropes that is in BL, but I think that there's more than other suggestions in the work. For example, in my research, what I will point out is that actually in queer culture, there is a term that we call MSM, men, sex, men. People who have sexual relationship with other men, but don't self-identify as queer are homosexual. So perhaps BL actually are leaving gaps that are quite, you know, that can fill out other social aspects in queer lives that we have not had a chance to talk about. Uh, And so I'm very much interested, you know, how do queer people view BL? How do queer people, especially in Canada, view BL? Because it's not specifically, you know, we inherit these material these media from, you know, from uh, across, um, you know, from Asia flooding over, Yes. for example. But because in, in Canada, there is such a, a, a lack 
of queer Asian representation in media right. that often we over, we rely on overseas media. But then how do we readapt these media for our own usage? And more importantly, I want to look at how queer audiences don't necessarily need to identify on an individual level, but right. how as a community they navigate and negotiate these media. And so one of the things that is I find that in BL, for example, is there's a lack of queer sociality presented in the media. Um, so then how does that trickle into the real life? Um, right. And then how do people re-inject that kind of queer sociality when they are using BL? So the writers are intriguing me. Mm-hmm. Japanese women, yeah. after World War II, suddenly decided to write about men, gay men. Do we know why? You know, there's Because a lot. they could have picked all sorts of things, but why... Why talk about gay men? Is well, it because think, the Japanese society changed after World War II? I, I don't know. but I think there's a couple of things that happen in alignment. You know, this idea of homoerotic stories, I mean, it, across it's so many cultures that have homoerotic stories mm-hmm. going so far um, into our history. So I think it came out of that lineage. And I think that during that time, a lot of female creators were kind of pigeonholed into telling stories about romance stories. Uh, um, so they were, you know, you're they a were female. Kind of liber- they were liberated it, after them. Yes. So it's kind of like you're a female manga comic artist. I'm going to give you a romance story to, to draw. Right? right, and right. I think out of that, people start experimenting. It's and BL is a type of romance story, but because it's two men, these writers were able to do a lot with these characters versus right. right? Whereas you know, in traditional romance, the female character would have depended on a male character to come and kind of liberate her and save her, or at least be the initial starting point for her to. Right. right. Whereas in, in BL, because they're both male character, as a reader, you can identify with both as the person who is being proactive and the old, the other, you, you know, who being is the more passive. Older, exactly. yes. <laughs> so you can pick and choose. So I think it's almost like a role playing game. Right. Um, and they attracted a lot of people in this genre. And I should really share that, you know, during the, the, the first BL really criticism, you know, very shortly after gay activists spoke up, lesbian activists actually counterpoint, saying that BL was a playground that they themselves also enjoy and needed. And so it went back and forth, which makes it, which makes it so much more interesting. Yes. And now, I think within the last 10 years, B, well, within the last 30 to 40 years, BL has spread all over Asia. And within the last right. 10 years, it is being adapted for live television and it's just oh, wow. exploded in terms of popularity. And I feel like it's also crossing, um, you know, it's crossing to Europe, Latin America, and uh, I think more recently North America. And we're also seeing a lot of recent queer romance films that are replicating the tropes of BL. And okay. so a lot of Western uh, gay romance, if you look at it, is, you know, it takes a lot of inspiration mm-hmm. uh, from BL. So what made you want to choose this kind of topic, you know, queer sociality? 
why, why that topic? When I was doing my master's, I, I did an MFA in documentary media. And so I've always been interested in representations, uh, especially right. marginal voices that are often mm-hmm. not given the platforms. And so I was, you know, researching on queer Asian representation. And right after, right after my master's, I, I, I was very interested in BL because I grew up knowing the media. Okay. But then I didn't apply to a PhD pro- program right away because I didn't think that the faculties in North America will understand what it is that I'm trying to do. Right. And I just felt that with more recently, because of the popularity and the scholarship in BL is spreading outside of Asia mm-hmm. and more is being written in English, that I feel like more scholars are, if they're not interested, at least they're aware right. that something is happening there. But yeah, even I guess right after my master, I was not very confident that, that you know, my interest in researching the topic was something that you know, the institutions would support. So the fact that you're able to do it here in this very long program name is <laughs> <laughs> is great for you then. <laughs> yes, it says a lot. It was uh, really made for you. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I was very lucky, I, I think, that there is a fit. Uh, but I think it also says a lot about the academic institutions in North America, that the landscape is changing. Right. And, you know, there are also scholars who are willing to support this kind of work or to mentor this this type of research. So I know you're looking at all of this and you've already mentioned a few things of how BL has moved from, say, just being in Japan to a bit more in, in Asia and now coming across into North America. What are you trying to present in your findings? I guess that's the best way. I mean, because mm-hmm. you're, you're getting all this information, this data. But then how are you going to present that? Because at the end of the day, you've still got to do a little bit of writing. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of writing. (laughs) Whereas, you know, you're talking about a story which could be changed into a movie and and all these sorts of things. So how are you going to present your findings? Well, when I was doing my master, I did a research creation project. So I did a documentary and a thesis. One of the reasons that I wanted to pursue a PhD was to improve my writing skills. And so specifically for my PhD, I want it to be um, written focused. So I'm doing a portfolio PhD in which there will be hopefully um, articles in there that I can pull out. But it, it will be mainly written. And the data that I'm compiling will be composed of mainly interviews with community members uh, who engage with BL. So it's very much community-based or community knowledge that I'm pulling from. Has that been easy to find enough people? Well, I haven't started my field work yet. Okay. Hoping to begin that in 2024. Great. Because I've been working in the queer Asian community for a very long time. And it's not my only project with right. the queer Asian community. So I feel that there's a ready built trust mm-hmm. in some but, but of that's the... That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can I tell you that, you know, the very first project that I did, and at that time I had no media training whatsoever. I wanted to do um, just like a little video on queer Asian voices. And all we did was, you know, we told people we had two boxes of pizza, we're meeting at this park. <laughs> And people came. People came to share their stories. We sat in the right. park, ate pizza, and shared stories with one another. 
Uh, and it was a beautiful experience. And that's how I've always moved through, you know, my community is that building trust. And I think that people will then trust the work that you do and, and people show up. I think that's great. I mean, I know when anyone's doing a PhD, you can't do everything in one project because you would never finish. I would personally be interested in seeing, you know, the responses on whatever kind of questions you ask, say, the gay Asian community to gay Western society men to see how if, if there's a difference in how they're perceiving BL. And I think that would be fascinating too. To see, is, is there a difference? And if, and, and if so, what? And if there isn't a dis- difference, why not? <laughs> because coming from different back, cultural backgrounds. I, I can't speak on behalf of, of so many people in the communities and I haven't done the research to kind of compile the data that, that looks at the question that you're, you're thinking about. But I would conjecture that there, there, there will be differences mm-hmm. because, you know, our cultural upbringings are different. So we will view the media differently. I have a friend and he's not an Asian descent. Uh, he works in a bookstore in Toronto and he absolutely loved BL. Right. And he's also a writer and journalist. And he recently published a book that is BL related, but he pulls in werewolves and folklore, Western folklore, and it was nominated uh, for a Lambda Award. Oh, so I think, yeah. so I think you know, bringing parts of it in exactly. So I think there is BL, and then there is Eastern influences, and then you know what people, individual people in the community view the material and how they navigate and and interact with that material. I think is very individualized. But I think it's just in, especially in media and theory and academia, we often speak a lot about Western influences to the East and we very little, you know, do the other way. way. So it's very rare when we have case studies that can present that very visible line of media traveling from the East to West and influencing the West, right? Right. And then, so then, you know, what, how does that help us to redefine queerness? Yes. How does it help us to rethink the idea of sociality and community mm-hmm. building, right? And what does it mean to self-identify? I mean, right. one of the things, and I'll, maybe I'll just give, because this is just an individualized story, but for example, a lot of Western queer romance often put a lot of emphasis on that moment of coming out, right? That moment of yes. you identifying that you're queer to your Family loved ones, and... exactly, to your friends, mm-hmm. but you know, although that's important, it doesn't necessarily portray the experience of all queer people. I have friends who came out as gay, then found out that they're not gay and they want, they're want they actually trans. Right. And once they're trans, they're actually, oh, uh, they're trans, but they actually want to be in a partnership with another person that identifies the same gender as they are. Right. So, you know, it's, multiple moments of identifying so in bl maybe perhaps because the characters do not identify it actually leaves a lot of room for queer viewers you know to set where that moment of identifying is for them it's kind of like that cup that's half full right yes where if there's empty room people have more more space to negotiate and more space to kind of find themselves in it. Well, you've uh, got lots to talk about on that. (laughs) 
So I don't think you can have any problem filling up those chapters. <laughs> Which is awesome. So thank you for that part. We need to get on to the second part of what we wanted to talk about today, which is the Bell Park project and, and why you're actually a part of it. So first of all, what is or what was the Bell Park project and is it still going? It is. I, uh, it's a multi-year project that is helmed by Laura Murray, Dorit Naman, Aaron Sutherland, and a few, a few other scholars in the Queen's community. What we did was only, I guess, one iteration of the right. project yeah and um, you know there were a lot of other artists that were involved but what, what was your part of the project so i came in um, and pitched an installation so my part was an installation called can i rest in your shade and it's a two-part exhibition one is at the um, art and media lab at the bader center uh, performing center and one at the willow grove in the Bell Park. Right. And what what exactly, say for the part that's in Bell Park, what are you trying to show there? What are you wanting people to think about when they mm. see your installation? Actually started about, um, I guess, a year before this project. I was doing another project for the Kingston Film Festival honoring Alanis Albumsawin's work. And so I did, a, I, I did a small exhibition called Where the Willows meets the moon at the uh, open window gallery and I was kind of fascinated with the willows that are in Kingston and often when I talk to people you know I get the sense that people have the impression that these willows are native to this land and so when I was looking at the bell park so there's two breeds in the bell, bell park the Babylon and the other one is the golden weeping willow and the right. Babylon is actually, um, it originates from Northern Asia in that region. Okay. Um, and, the ba- uh, and the weeping golden willow is a hybrid of the Babylon. So I, I look at these um, entities, I look them and I see diasporic identity. Right, and so right. it, it, it spawns a lot of questioning for me. I guess, or it, it really draws me in, in terms of like, well, what does it mean to be a diasporic identity in this land and still, you know, and, and still be productive on this land, right? What does right, it mean to be right. a non-native entity, yet still be a caretaker of the land? Right. And then some of the things that I was looking at was, for example, the Bell Park, at a certain point in its history, it was used as a golf course. And hmm. these willow trees, they would have been used as ornament, you know, ornamental features in in right. these these and in 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 the golf course. And so I was also interested in well, what does it mean to be ornamental in this landscape? Right, as opposed right. to is its other functions. As mm-hmm. as a, right, and do what kind and where are your values assigned? Right, as right. ornamental. And so I approached the project very much from my own family stories and and family history um, of Vietnamese descent. Most of my right. families, you know, came uh, to Canada, you know, dur- right after the Vietnam War. My mom and my dad tried, failed twice. My dad was put in re-education camp. And we kind of gave up that hope of, of, you know, rejoining our family. And it, it wasn't until much later that we were sponsored to come to Canada because we were the, you know, the only remaining family unit back in Vietnam and and so you know and so we came that 
experience of being refugees, of, you know, thinking about shelters really drew me to what was happening at the Bell Park Project. Right. And so I wanted to talk about it, but I want to talk about it through my own family's story and experience and through this diasporic lens, because I think it was so fitting with the with the willows that was already residing in the park. And so it was really this conversation about refuge. Right. Um, yeah. I think, you know, if you go to the willow grove, there's a willow that has fallen. So if you go and you see it in the winter, for example, you know, a lot of people would assume it's dead wood. But if you go right at the summertime, it's, it's luscious, it's full of life, and right, it's still right. so productive. And right. so I'm always curious about like, you know, our essence of, of value that we assign to productivity. How do we categorize when a, a species is invasive or not, you know, especially mm-hmm. when it's a foreign entity that's on, uh, you know, on the land, you know, that kind of language also change um, its growth. Yeah, so much to talk about there. But, but it's interesting because uh, I was just reading some of your bits here about some of the comments you've made on, on the form for me yeah. about, you know, as you mentioned, when does a foreign plant become an invasive species or should it have been here anyway because it's doing so much more for the surrounding area, whether it's creating new life mm-hmm. or whether it's willows have take up a lot of water. So as a, if it's a really wet area, maybe that's helping keep some of the it getting so waterlogged and, and things but then like you said with your own family connections like part of your family moved first and you you were like at the last of your family to be able to move over as well and what does that mean coming into a new area mm-hmm. i mean it's, it, i would imagine it's very different coming to you talk about refuge mm-hmm. being plonked in toronto versus being plonked in kingston mm-hmm. so to speak you know how does all that work how does that all play out and how do you feel about that very confusing (laughs) i think i think there's no easy answers to these things i mean it's very confusing confusing in the sense that when i came i was in my teenage year it was confusing then because i was like there was a cultural shock and you know you often hear slurs um, racial slurs and comments like you know go back to china and you know, things like, I'm not Chinese, right? It's a nice thing to say regardless. Exactly. And you, but then you also grow into communities that are accepting. You find people that are embracing of others. And I think it's realizing that there is always going to be friction. Uh, One of the things that I talk a lot about with my project is that I feel that Toronto, Kingston, Canada, we're going to be changing demographically and we're going to be changing a lot. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Refugee crisis all over the world. So the demographic and the places that we are sharing with other people, it's going to change. And with that change, it's going to come with a lot of friction. And so I'm, you know, the friction, I think, is not something that we can do away with. But what we can do better is how we treat one another, um, how we can be compassionate with one another. And we can promote this kind of continuous generosity. And so when you say friction, it's all those things. It's not, we're not just talking friction about, well, I need this space for me. Yes. Yes. It's, it's everything. Uh, well, because I think that, you know, with change in demographic, you're going to have different ideals of how that space should be run, how that right. sh- space should look like in the future. Cultural clashes are just even different 
personal experience, living experiences that's going to come and, you know, come against one another. But I feel that those moments do happen. People can say hurtful things. And you could also say hurtful things. But we can be compassionate with ourselves. Um, Because I find that sometimes it's not just compassionate with other. Sometimes I feel that the thing that holds us back is compassion for ourselves. Because, you know, we say something wrong. And we know that we've hurt somebody. And so we shy away from interacting with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that if we have that kind of compassion for ourselves that, okay, we did something wrong, we say something wrong, but it's, you know, what's more important is how do we move forward together forward. and how we can hold one another in this space. Right. And do you think this is what the Bell Project is all about? I can't this speak on behalf of the entire Bell Park Project. <laughs> I, but I hope that it is what is at the core of the Bell Park Project. And so it, people can still go around and see some of this? No, so this was only gone. for that duration of the, right. the, 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 the project. But I think um, the, you know, what is most important is that we create that kind of space for discussion. And so, yeah, so I think that during that time when we put up the project, we were able to generate, especially the people who visited the park, you know, it sparked a lot of, you know, question about the residents that are currently at the park and how, you know, yes, if we do not want people there, we have to provide the necessary services for folks. You know, we can't yes. just evacuate people. And so a lot of social issues, I think that we should, you know, we, we can talk about. And, talk. Think- and that's the thing. We've got to keep talking, not, not just keep quiet the whole time. Absolutely. And, and like you said, that something like the Bell Project sparks discussion. Mm-hmm. And that's all we can hope for with art yes. projects. Yeah. Well, Vince, it's been fascinating. I know we could go on a lot longer, <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to have to stop. I, I do this every week and I go way too long, but that's okay. It's because I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so I really do appreciate you coming on, talking not only about your own research with Boys Love, as well as the Bell Park Project. And I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you um, so much. With all the interviews and things you're going to have to do later. And uh, I, I'm sure... Well, as long as you enjoy doing it, that's the good thing, right? You've got to keep enjoying what you're doing. And I'm sure everyone's going to be very interested in, in your findings for both. Well, thank you so much. That's been a lovely chat with you. Wow. Good, good, good. So that's it, everyone. Another week of a grad chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC Podcast. Just type in grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.